Shut up and sit down. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. A guy like me should never be allowed to get in here in the first place. I know that. Either I'm dead right or I'm crazy. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. There's only one person in the world who decides what I'm going to do, and that's me. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Kevin King Show. I am joined today by a guest that is is a very different topic than I have covered here previously, but yet I think it's something that is very relevant and a lot of people will find very interesting to see what is going on um, in a country just 90 miles off of our southern coast. Um, with me today, I have Ibis Valdez, who is a young voices advocate and um, has a background in international national law and human rights. And she also works with an organization in South Florida uh, called Engage Miami, which tries to get young people involved in the political process. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Did I, did I get the name right? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Perfect. No, I, I only did it once pre-show. So I wanted to, uh, to make sure I didn't butcher it too much. <laughs> so to to kind of get things started, why don't you give us just a brief synopsis of what has been going on uh, with the latest elections down in Cuba? Yeah. So, of course, since uh, the bombshell news of, of November 2016, when Fidel Castro died fittingly on Black Friday, the most capitalistic holiday. Um, <laughs> Irony. It, right. It was it was just it was too great. The memes from that were amazing. But um Ever since he trans powers transferred to his brother Raul, even before his death, Raul just doesn't want to finish out, you know, a lifelong uh, presidential term. So now power is going to be designated to the next head of state. And so just to give an, a little bit of background as to how Cuban elections work. So there are elections in Cuba, although the what you're able to achieve with them is much more limited than you would, for example, here in the United States or other multi-party democracies in, in Europe, where um there is an internal committee that essentially delegates uh, representatives from different provinces across Cuba. And what Cuban citizens do is that then they elect who they want representing their province in the Congressional Assembly, which meets in Havana, the capital. How, but if it's all just one party rule and there's an internal committee that is designating these delegates, what kind of elections are they really, what are you truly electing? Um, or what kind of change are you impacting? So the whole point of the, um, well, rather, so that's what's going on right now is that these delegates are then going to elect essentially the next head of state. So it's not Cuban citizens that directly um, elect their next leader. I mean, even though in the United States, we do have an electoral college, it kind of dilutes votes depending on where, you know, what state you're voting in. But regardless, we do have a lot more direct say than the Cuban citizen in presidential elections. Yeah. So explain a little bit more about the uh, the kind of the one state, one party principle where people are very limited in eff effectively, they're just voting in players that are part of the established system already. 
Yes. So that this is exactly what the Varela project uh, was meant to address. So a little bit of background about um, about Rosa Maria Paya, the um, the young woman who is leading right now among the more successful campaigns to uh, make Cuba transition to multi-party elections is that her father, Osvaldo Paya, was an intellectual professor in Cuba who wanted to take advantage of an amendment in the Cuban constitution, which says that if you can gather 10,000 signatures, a proposal can be voted upon in order to amend the constitution of Cuba. So with this, he wanted to gather 10,000 signatures as well as international support, not just domestically, in order to shed light on the really restrictive one-party rule that Cuba has in order to make the country transition non-violently to become a multi-party democracy because the problem is that in the past you've had the you know the much reported bay of pigs invasions the cia has tried to take out fidel castro through violent means but his approach was very distinctive in that it was non-violent and in fact using the constitution in effect in effect against itself however he died in a very suspicious car accident in 2012. A lot of dissidents think that the Cuban government orchestrated his takeout so that he wouldn't pose a threat to the one-party system. And so his daughter, understandably, who was very distraught, um, decided to channel that rage into pro- you know into a very productive means. And in fact, she's continuing her father's work. And that's how she devised the Cuba Decida campaign, which calls for a binding plebiscite or referendum so that the Cuban government can recognize its dire need to transition to multi-party elections and thus a, a true representative democracy. Well, as I was reading the content that you sent me to, to get up to speed on this subject, um, and you wrote a, a fantastic article that is on Glenn Beck's website that I will post a link for in the show notes for everyone else to check out, um, talking about uh, Rosa Maria uh, Paya and the work that she is doing. And one of the interesting things that, you know, I think that is completely ignored by the media and I think a lot of people don't know about is ever since you had the embargo lifted and President Obama and the, and the State Department sort of championing, um, you know, things are different in Cuba. Things are great now. We need to, to travel there and do all those things. Um, mm-hmm. That's not really the case, is it? No, Cuba's certainly not great. I mean, I have personally very uh, mixed feelings about Obama's approach to Cuba. Um, I feel that he kind of, in some aspects, jumped the gun a little too soon, um, assuming that Cuba was in such a place internally, politically, uh, to be able to normalize relations with the states. Because the problem is that there's still a lot of aggression between both countries. So, for instance, uh, something that I um, I wrote about in my article is that there was a, um, a boat, a North Korean boat intercepted near Panama that had weapons on it. And those weapons were never really identified for what purpose they were. Um, and so that's something that poses a threat to the U.S. So if Cuba, a country very, very close to us, with powerful connections to despotic regimes, you know, has no problem endorsing that those kind of regional dangers, that poses a threat to our democracy. We've had spies that have reached, for example, they've been able to penetrate the Pentagon sent by the Cuban government, but posing as, you know, like you, uh, like, like as, as, as if they were like official Pentagon workers, you know what I mean? So 
Yeah, we we still have the Cuban government trying to subvert us on, you know, regularly torturing its own citizens. Anyone who speaks out in favor of, you know, of of free speech, you know, American values, right, of, you know, First Amendment, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of press. Though, So it's just that um, Obama just didn't. I think one of my biggest critiques of his approach is that he just didn't really make enough space to truly recognize the plight of the Cuban dissidents. Um, I know that he had met with uh, Las Damas en Blanco, the women in white, roughly translated. These are mothers of political prisoners that manifest regularly, speaking out against the Cuban government, taking away um, their sons and daughters. Um, for arbitrary reasons that, you know, would not be honored here in the States. You know, here you're allowed to protest, you're allowed to speak out, you're allowed to express however you feel. Um, but unfortunately, those are liberties that we take for granted here that are not even allowed there. And much less with very limited internet and ways to disseminate what you think. Yeah. And you make that connection to North Korea supporting this. And you said uh, China as well. I was I was reading in, mm-hmm. in, in part of what you sent. And I think it's very interesting when you pair that to what we saw on the Olympic stage during the uh, the Winter Olympics with everyone championing North Korea, while simultaneously a lot of very, you know, they're, they're very bad uh, with any sort of civil rights. And mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a whole lot of false front going on. And I, I got the sense that this is kind of what we're seeing in Cuba. There is not a real empowerment of the people. You have a regime that is really controlling the narrative. And so so what what do you think that we are missing when we see North Korea paraded through the Olympics or the um, the conversation around Cuba or even uh, China as they are getting more and more in talks of of being on the national stage mostly economically, but mm-hmm. in, in other factors as far as a global superpower. I mean, I think this also really reflects um, a big failure on behalf of the international communities, uh, particularly international entities like the UN, like UNESCO. Um, they regularly invite despotic regimes to sit on committees like the Human Rights Council. Or were you aware that Cuba is on the Human Rights Council in the UN? I, I was not. And I, I want you to touch more on that because you talk about <laughs> how, you know, uh, there has been a lot brought before the Human Rights Council about the treatment of people in Cuba, and it's somewhat dismissed. Mm-hmm. So it's just really uh, you have to question what are what is the standard of fact? What are the metrics that international entities like the U.N. use to that they use to judge you know, countries and governments like that of Cuba to be able to have the credibility to sit on a committee like the Human Rights Council, you know, when they can't even represent from their own example, a true representative democracy, a free society, a thriving economy, when none of that exists on the island. You know, they're just always kind of jumping from either if it's not Venezuela, it's North Korea, if it's North Korea, you know, possibly China in order to sustain an unsustainable system. None whatsoever. What do you think that an organization like the Human Rights Council or the the UN as a whole or even the United States um, can effectively do to help spur things along? Or do you think it's their role or kind of kind of what is your stance on that? So, I mean, it definitely comes from the overhead, um, unfortunately, because the UN um, has a country like Cuba on the Human Rights Council, because like, for instance, like the UN and UNESCO, they're always recognizing uh, Cuba's humanitarian medical campaigns. They're supposedly shining, brilliant healthcare system, which is in complete tatters. And I've seen it myself. It is nowhere near um, what a healthcare system deserving of that award should, you know, of of these recognitions uh, should be. Um, It's just, it's, 
this very stark um, double standard that is employed for regimes that are, let's say, right-leaning or left-leaning. Because you notice that Pinochet in Chile is almost always crucified. But you have, um, you know, despotic, tyrannical leaders like the casters, like Che Guevara, who are otherwise, you know, their images are on all kinds of uh, paraphernalia and T-shirts and whatnot, you know, usually co-opted by social justice movements of like the far left or even just, un, you know, people may, that may not identify as far left, but because they're not acquainted with the true history, you know, the the, the suppression of speech, free speech, the homophobic uh, concentration camps, you know, really extreme human rights violations that are not tolerated by the mainstream left, regardless, they use the image of the Castros, you know, if you look at like Colin Kaepernick, um, when he took a knee at, uh, you know, during, uh, during his, uh, his games in the NFL to protest, you know, uh, police brutality and ongoing violence politically, economically, socially against the black community in the United States. Um, he showed up at one of his press conferences with a t-shirt on of Fidel Castro, sh- you know, shaking hands with Malcolm X. And that's something as well, again, like just that the romanticization of the, the images of these tyrants, you know, you, for, 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 for movements that may not have a clear understanding of what they've actually achieved in, in Cuba and elsewhere. We, it's all a matter of education. Again, getting back to the facts, like if, if right wing leaders are going to be dragged, left wing leaders should be, too, just because they use the hunger and the desperation of the people that um, – they control in order to justify their campaigns, you know, their, their, their illegitimate uh, presidencies and whatnot doesn't mean that it was right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you kind of what, what should people be researching and taking away when you see advocates for socialism or people who are at least romanticizing it and Yet in our lifetime, we see Venezuela and Cuba and and these perfect examples of how not only has it failed, but how negatively it impacts the lives of, of hundreds of thousands and, and millions mm-hmm. of people who are now in bread lines and, you know, cannot get basic health care. They, they, they have no rights and they have very few, um, you know, basic necessities. What, what should people be taking away from these instances that we see right now in front of us? I mean, these, these aren't historical examples. This is going on right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually, okay. When I am in the presence of someone that identifies very strongly as socialist, you know, I really don't like to bend to the pressure of these horribly vitriolic culture wars, you know, where you automatically see each other as the enemy Absolutely. rather than right. someone that you can like collaborate with or, you know, at least like have a meeting of the minds with. So like, you know, going back to that, like when I am in front of someone who identifies as socialist and they have these values, I just see someone who is deeply concerned about humanity. And they think that socialism is the best, you know, political and economic prescription to those social ills. And usually they'll have really great fleshed out social justice theories of why different classes of people are oppressed for what reasons um, and how, you know, and cherry picking. Well, I guess, yeah, to a degree, cherry picking specific instances of which there are many, admittedly, of how the market has wronged people because of um our past with colonialism, with imperialism, exploitation of vulnerable uh, communities. And of course, that's something to be recognized. However, that being said, it's really difficult as well when they respond back, well, true socialism has never been tried. And it almost makes me feel, again, with some individuals more than others, because I do have friends who identify as socialists who like understand they may not agree where I'm coming from, 
but they can at least put into context where I'm coming from. Because for instance, my father was a political prisoner for 10 years in Cuba. I always thought for years that maybe he was part of some cohort to overthrow the Castros, you know, something like deserving of its own action movie, you know, something really dramatic, but actually not at all. It was during his youth, he worked a lot of odd jobs to support himself, as many of us do. One of them was selling perfume. And because after the revolution, because he did not relinquish all of his income to the government, he was charged with these really serious, you know, counter-revolutionary treason, you know, blah, 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 all the buzzwords. And he was, you know, thrown in jail for up to like 10 years. Throughout all his 20s, you know, he lost any chance of being educated, of starting his own business, of sustaining himself. But, you know, the government took that away from a socialist government took that away from him because they thought that they knew better how he should support himself than he than he did. You know, um, so it's really difficult to some. I mean, again, depending on the individual to explain how markets, in fact, enable people like when you think of for example um and yeah so like in some countries in west africa you have like women that have really entrepreneurial instincts but oftentimes the, not the resources to sustain themselves so for instance like microfinancing is a really powerful way of how capitalism helps to lift the most vulnerable in society when you give people especially those who have traditionally been locked out of of the mar, you know, of, of like the of the formal market because of homophobia, sexism, racism. But when you give them the tools to make them realize you are a rational economic actor, just like anybody else, and if you have an idea, you should bring it to fruition. It's powerful to see the transport, you know, the transformation in these societies. Um, or same with a lot of initiatives in, in where I lived, for example, in Ecuador for a while. Um, you have, or say Central America in Guatemala, you have women that produce these incredible designs. You know, um, but because, again, traditional um, machismo in these societies that don't allow women to thrive on their own, their, you know, their products can be uh, copied, plagiarized, not given proper credit, and therefore they miss out on an opportunity to sustain themselves, to really poise themselves as, you know, a formidable economic force. So I think it's just understanding the difference between theory and reality um, and being able to really scrub this image of capitalism only being the system, being a system that only supports like the evil rich white man and the fact that capitalism can benefit everyone. It's just a matter, I think, of optics and, and imaging that needs to be discussed for sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point because uh, a quote I always go back to and and I will misattribute it. So I just want to attribute it to anyone. But it's something along the lines of um, capitalism is the worst form except for all the others. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not the the end all be all and it has its downsides, but other systems have far worse downsides. And you see, like you described, the use of force, you know, equality is a is a great idea. But when you're taking away someone's individual freedoms to theoretically give an equal amount to someone else, you know, that carries a huge human rights component to it that I think a lot of people don't discuss. Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. So that's why, I mean, it's important even to consider in Cuba, you know, again, it's, it's painted as this like socialist, perfect utopia pearl of the Caribbean, but you go there. Like, I mean, when I went, uh, I went for the first time in 2015, 
I asked my father to take me, you know, like before, because I, I have an old dad, you never know, you know, when he's going to go. And I said, you know, I want you to take me where you grew up and how you lived and where you went. And so it was a very powerful experience for me to also be able to finally meet young Cubans my age um, and just to get to talk to them. It didn't have to be super political, but just, you know, what were their dreams, their aspirations? Like, what did they want? And like, you see them trying to... Is sub, you know, subvert, maybe not in, op- you know, openly in ways that would get them jailed. But, you know, even though intermittent is really limited, they want to get their hands on smartphones. Um, and even though a lot of like there, there's a lot of, you know, like not just an economic, but a cultural embargo between the U.S. and Cuba. Like you see them jamming out to like American electronic music and pop music. Um, they try to dress themselves, you know, that you have like Cuban hipsters, you have Cuban rappers, you have like everything that you see here. They're trying to replicate it best as they can on the island, because even though the system tells them, you know, you are part of a collective, like for this, for, for the sake of the greater good of the society, they want to express their individualism however they can. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, th- this has been a, a very eye-opening experience, kind of how I opened with th- the stuff that you have shown me just in the article you wrote and the other links that you sent is just mm. something people aren't talking about. And this no, is so close, so close to home. I mean, w- you know, we go back 20 years. I remember, I guess maybe it's 25 now. I'm starting to get old, I think. But, um, you know, Elian Gonzalez, you know, on the on the television and, oh, um, you know, the 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 fact that we're so close to a country that has, um, you know, so much to offer and is, could be such a great, um, you know, such a great cultural resource for, for United States. Right. And yet I don't know that we're doing enough to help. You know, what, what can we do? So basically, yeah, this is why I'm really glad you invited me on your show. Um, so the whole point of the Guadalajara campaign is to build momentum and support, not just domestically on the island, but also internationally. What you can do to help support, um, to support Rosa Maria and the campaign is to first off, go online and sign it. It's literally like a petition. Um, second off, contact your represent, you know, your, your, your elected officials, um, particularly at a congressional level, um, you know, whoever deals with foreign affairs, tell them to not recognize the next designated head of state of Cuba, because again, it's not democratic. They're not elected by the people. They are designated in a top-down fashion from a very corrupt and restrictive and oppressive communist party, one party rule. Um, as I understand, Mark Rubio, Nikki Haley, and other some other really big players um, within the U.S. political system are already building momentum to not recognize the next head of state. Um, so it's important, but it's important that even if it's not like, you know, say like a Cuban American official or so, because of course, like all of the ones in Florida are really plugged into the issue. But even if you're from, again, like a different state that you think may not have anything to do, all the support that we can get is crucial um, to not only erasing awareness, but also helping Rosa Maria accomplish, you know, help avenge her father's death and accomplish the task of finally bringing justice and freedom politically and, and economically to the Cuban people and especially the Cuban youth. Because for instance, uh, just to talk in terms that are relevant to us, um, did you know that in Cuba, LGBT Cubans cannot organize independently based on their different needs. There's just one woman, um, one of Fidel Castro's daughters, Mariela, Mariela Castro, who is in charge of organizing an entire diverse community's needs. 
they don't have freedom of assembly. They can't, you know, uh, break off into, okay, this is a group for trans, this is the group for lesbians, this is a group for gay men, for, for like, they, they don't have that freedom. They have to all respond by one woman. And of course, like one person cannot define all of the LGBT community's needs. Um, for instance, if you want to see Cuba have a female head of state, sign this petition and support Guadalajara because up till, you know, because I, um, during my master's, I did a, a research internship with the state, the U.S. State Department. They wanted to conduct a, uh, an economic baseline study of the Cuban economy. And of the entire group of, it was like 17 of us, I was the only one to recommend, can we do an economic study from a gender perspective? I want to see how Cuban men, women, LGBT people, Afro-Cubans, you know, how do they fare? in the Cuban economy. And it turns out that, spoiler alert, communism does not solve gender inequality. You know, women have representation up until a point. They're given important ceremonial positions, but the Communist Party of Cuba, for all intents and purposes, is still an old boys club. It's a frat. It's very macho. Um, so there's just so... So, and also, I mean, Cuba also has a really bad problem in terms of uplifting its Afro-Cuban population. You know, in the beginning, I mean, even Che was very open about his racism. He, there are quotes, verified quotes about him um, openly disparaging the, Af you know, the, the, the Afro-Cubans, saying that they were less than human, they're brutes, they're this, they're that. So Afro-Cubans have typically had a very difficult time establishing themselves on the island when, for instance, like years ago, when you would go to a Cuban resort, they would only put the whiter Cubans in like in the client facing work, whereas Afro-Cubans were the ones doing a lot of the behind the scenes work. Um, they were usually cleaning the rooms and whatnot. Um, whereas like at the reception, you'd see like the white Cuban, for instance. So this really means so much to different kinds of Cubans that need, you know, the proper like representation. So, you know, political power, economic power to finally break free of this one party system that just does nothing and represses everybody. Well, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on it and and telling everyone about this. And um, I definitely want to put links in the in the show notes to the articles that you've written, as well as any other information you can pass my way. A link for sure. To the petition. Um, and and please, if you will, I mean, any other information articles that you publish anywhere else, we would love to have up on the Tavern Voices website as well um, to just get as many eyes as possible on this situation, because I think it is absolutely uh, critically important. I think especially given um, the modern conversations that people our age have about the idealistic versions of socialism. And I think we mm -hmm. need to be aware of, of people who are having to endure it right now. Exactly, for sure. Um, so please follow me on Twitter at Valdez Ebis, if you can put that as well afterwards. So I would love to have conversations with listeners. If you have any more specific questions, that's where I'm super active. Um, and yeah, anything else I'll think of later, I'll pass on to you. But yeah, just go to Google Cuba Decide or Cuba Decide in English, um, sign it. And again, request that your congressional elected officials not recognize the next head of state because he will be designated, not elected. We cannot continue perpetuating this illegitimate regime for the sake of Cubans, especially the younger ones. Perfect. Th thank you so much for your time. And um, and we'll we'll have to uh, do this again and, and get an update on how things are going down the road. Um, but but once again, thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, hear more from you soon. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Thanks so much.